I know. I think that like younger engineers now, they just, they don't have this like trauma from like a world where like development and operations were like super, super separate. It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast where we help you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Maddie Stratton, and I've got a great guest with me today. But first, a word from our sponsors. Chef is a community of professionals practicing DevOps every day. We are making, proving, learning, and shaping the future. We are known for welcoming, encouraging, and liberating others to do the same. We do not talk about change. We do change. Join the community and learn about our solutions at chef.io. This episode is brought to you by Datadog, a monitoring tool that helps bridge the gap between operations and dev teams. Datadog brings together system metrics, changes, alerts, and events from over 120 common infrastructure tools, such as Chef, Docker, and AWS, so that dev and ops teams share their key data and alerts in a single place and collaborate on issues in real time. Datadog is available for a free 14-day trial at arresteddevops.com datadog. So I'm joined today by Christine Spang, the CTO of Nihilus, and we're going to be talking about her journey creating a welcoming, inclusive, and inviting company culture and kind of wherever the conversation takes us. So show notes for this episode can be found at arresteddevops.com spang. So uh, Spang, can you start off by telling us a little bit uh, about, about yourself and kind of your, uh, your history in tech? Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Maddie. It's uh, great to be on uh, Arrested DevOps. Uh, I am particularly excited to be on this show because um, my background is actually really infrastructure focused. So while I'm like a CTO now and really don't write any code or spin up any servers or anything, um, it's definitely like close to my heart to be kind of in the infrastructure community. And uh, I, I love just being a part of that. So um, I guess I can kind of like take a step back and start at the beginning to kind of introduce myself. Um, I was born in Toronto, uh, but actually grew up in upstate New York because my dad got a great electrical engineering job in upstate New York and kind of always wanted to uh, kind of live the American dream. So I moved to upstate New York when I was three and a half. So I'm kind of like a fake Canadian and uh, really am an American with with a Canadian passport, which is useful. But uh, I I feel like I've also lost my Canadian accent at this point. So it's it's a secret thing I I whip out every once in a while to surprise people. Um, And... When I was when I was in school, I was like a music geek. I played the French horn for about a decade, um, and read a lot of books. And uh, eventually, at some point, I started getting into computer games. And through computer games, I got into uh, into programming, which ultimately led me to uh, get involved in free and open source software. So I started hacking on uh, Debian when I was in high school, um, and through that, ended up going to MIT because I basically heard that like free software came from MIT and I was like, mm-hmm. that's where I want to go. That's the place for me. And was totally right about that. Kind of like found my people there and uh, I got a CS degree. And uh, my favorite class at MIT was operating systems engineering. So 
uh, through that and through like the MIT Computer Club, which is called the Student Information Student Information Processing Board. It's a super mouthful. Um, like this group was was actually formed like decades ago in order to like manage like the time sharing on this like Multics cluster. So it's got a crazy old name, um, but it's basically the computer club. And I met a bunch of really smart people there and uh, including some people who started this company called Case which was a kernel engineering company that was uh, doing some really cool stuff for Linux where you could take a source code patch and turn it into a binary hot patch. And then the company ran this service that used that process on all security updates uh, that came out for the Linux kernel. So I through basically through my involvement in Debian. So I was an official Debian developer. I could upload packages and stuff like that. Uh, I knew this person, uh, Tim Abbott from uh, the MIT computer club. And uh, he was one of the founders of case place. And so eventually I ended up working at case place through that. So that was my first job after I finished at MIT. Um, So I kind of dived into the startup world right away um, I got to say my, my background in like free and open source software didn't really set me up for like, like hacking all of the like big company software jobs because I, I just thought all those people were the man basically. Um, and, uh, like in college I worked at, uh, some like, I once spent a summer working for this like nonprofit called one laptop per child, which was, uh, basically trying to create really low cost computers for kids all over the world to increase computing literacy. And they were releasing all of their software for free because it was a nonprofit. Um, and then I also spent a couple summers working for a small software shop called Best Practical, which is um, one of the few companies out there that was just like a services organization uh, around an open source product, this uh, ticket tracking system called Request Tracker. Um, so I kind of worked these like random jobs that I got through my network and, uh, got really excited about working uh, on kernel stuff. And that's how I ended up working at case place. And so somehow this like confluence of like being a hacker on open source software stuff ended me in the startup world. Um, and so I spent about three years working on Case Place. Uh, one of those years was independent, and two of those years were uh, at Oracle because the founders sold the company to Oracle, um, and Oracle ended up basically taking the product and rolling it up into their Oracle Unbreakable Linux offering and kind of porting the technology to a few other products that they had internally. Um, so I, I got a bit of a taste of like being at a really big company through Oracle and um, had a bunch of time to get really into rock climbing, which uh, was great. No regrets. Uh, I still do it. It's super fun. Um, and kind of towards the end of my time there was trying to figure out what to do next. And um, it was just like a good time in my life to kind of, jump off the deep end and kind of do something that might not work out at all. Um, I was still living in Boston at the time and had a lot of my kind of friends and network who 
were like slowly starting to move away. It was, you know, almost three years after I'd graduated and uh, people were trickling on to other places and kind of wanted to check out being somewhere else and didn't have a compelling other place to be. So there was really no reason not to kind of try starting something new. Though like I wasn't one of those people that like, you know, when I was a teenager or anything was like, I'm definitely going to start a company someday though. Um, I do feel like I've always had like a multitude of interests and I think that I can make a pretty good like bridge between different cultures. So uh, kind of looking back in hindsight, it was a good fit for me to kind of come from like a hacker background and then start a company. Cool. So, uh, so you've been working, you founded Nihilus about five years ago, right? Yeah, it's crazy. It's um, almost the, almost exactly the anniversary of our uh, incorporation, actually. So when I moved to California, I gave notice to Oracle on August 1st. So I gave them two weeks. So (laughs) I pretty much started working around August 15th of 2013. And uh, we incorporated the company, me and my co-founder, Michael. Uh, I, I was within the next like week or something like that. So... Yeah, can time flies. Kind of tell us a little bit about what uh, Nihilus does from a product perspective. Yeah, totally. So the basic thesis behind the company is that um, email dev- email has not really had a lot of innovation in the product space over the last while, basically since Gmail came out, because uh, over the last five decades or so that email has been around, it's just gotten so complicated to develop with and to integrate with that um, people have stopped building new things with it. So the kind of reason for Nihilus to exist is to make it much easier to develop things that integrate with email and also with context and calendar in order to uh, allow people to like build new products that make people's lives easier. So Email is pretty much the lingua franca of business and its usage, despite many cries of uh, email is is dying or email is going to be replaced by such and such new messaging technology. Uh, its usage has actually continued to grow year over year. So unlike technologies like SMS, which are in fact decreasing in usage, uh, email continues to grow and grow. And we need to be able to like glue email to other things. Uh, people want specialized tools, and the mission of Nihilus is to uh, empower people to build those tools, to combine the data in email with the data in other systems, and uh, ultimately to also get more value out of all of this data that we have built into our communication systems. So when you kind of, I'd like to kind of get some understanding or maybe a little bit of um some of the things about, you know, building a company, starting with, you know, you and your, your co-founder getting to today, when you're building about, you know, we talk a lot about the culture of an organization and what are some of the things that you've done to kind of make Nihilus the place that you, that you wanted it to be as a founder? Yeah, I think there's like a lot of different pieces of this. One is just like, like having spent time kind of like writing down what our values are and like using that as a way to kind of share and replicate those values. 
So I guess like we didn't do this right away and I don't want to like dig into it like super much, but uh, for example, I can't really beat around the bush that there that my original co-founder who joined the company is not with the company anymore. And uh, there are like cultural reasons that are related to that. And I'm really happy with the company where it is today. Um, but the, how we got there has been, has involved a lot of like learning over the past five years. Um, and one thing that we did kind of like in conjunction with uh, my co-founder leaving was uh, kind of writing an actual company handbook and publishing that and using that as a way to like kind of reflect on what we wanted as a company. And um, I think that's been really valuable. I think, I think in the early days we did spend some time like thinking about this, but it was more kind of unsaid and that's like, it's like possible to do when you're just a few a few people in a room, but we've had to get more mindful and intentional about it as we've grown the company. So, for example, in the past eight to ten months or so, we've doubled in size as a company, and I think that like you can kind of afford to like run off of uh, like a shared understanding that is not necessarily written down when you're small and not changing that fast but when you start to kind of scale up and and add lots of new people you need to communicate with those people and like uh tell them like what you want to be about so you can attract the right sort of people that you that are compatible with like the vision that you see for the company and also like just you know, people are not always on the same page about things. So you have to have conversations in order to like define the right words to be talking about uh, what you want as a company. So I can, I can dive into kind of more specifics and more details. Um, yeah. But I'm curious what, what kind of resonates as interesting about that from you. Well, and one of the things that I, I'd be curious about, again, and, and like you said, when you kind of start as a smaller organization, there's kind of unstated things or you kind of have a, a similar vibe. And as you grow, there's more formalization or just more intentionality around it. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what some of the values and culture that you that you have at Nihilus that's important to you? Yeah, so I think kind of overall, like, my personal leadership style is rooted in trust and listening. And I think that like when you're creating a company, it's, it's true that like a lot of culture and a lot of values is, is set from people who are kind of in positions of power at an organization and like it or not, if you, if you start a company, if you found a company, like even if you don't have a hierarchy at that company, you, you as a founder have more power than other people in the company. So um, it's kind of this thing where like, you know, if you don't have an explicit structure, there's still an implicit structure. So uh, just keep in mind that like as a founder, you are, you are, you are the leader of the company, whether, whether you like say so or not. Um, And there is a lot of things that you can instill in your team just by like living and embodying them. And one of the things that's most important to me is to uh, really truly listen to people, to 
to focus on empathy and to try to understand where people are coming from. Um, and I think that this results in trust being built, especially like, you know, once you achieve understanding of where someone's coming from and what someone needs and you can figure out what you can do to follow up on something if it's a problem that that builds trust over time and i think that like if you have trust in an organization like that allows you to get over a lot of things that um can be really hard if you don't have trust so to me like the foundation of like uh, a great culture and a great like leadership team is trust. And what are some of the things? So if we're, we talk about building high trust cultures, what are, you know, we've talked about kind of having some implicit things and things like that, but what are, um, I know we talk about how you, you can't really just sort of define culture, right? You can uh, work towards the behavior that you want, right. And, and incentivize. And so what are some of the, the things that people can do, in your mind to kind of build towards a high trust culture. Yeah. I mean, it always starts by, by like demonstrating by example, you know, if you want people to like show up on time for meetings, be on time to meetings yourself. If you want people to like, uh, to trust people, then you can demonstrate that by, for example, uh, giving other people responsibility and, uh, not interfering with their execution of doing that and, you know, checking in on progress and connecting that back to goals, but um, not micromanaging. Um, I think that's definitely one thing that can undermine trust is, is like essentially like giving someone responsibility for something, but then not actually allowing them to own that thing. Like for example, if you, if you had someone, ask someone to like write a blog post about like some recent thing that they built or technology that they worked on. And then when they brought that blog post back to you, you just like rewrote the whole thing like that, that undermines trust because you're not allowing them to like share their voice. If they put a lot of work into it and try to make it really polished, then uh, people want you know, their writing to reflect themselves and um, doing things like that is something you can do to like undermine trust. Uh, I think one thing that's really big is consistency also, like just saying the same thing week after week and being consistent. And like, if you are changing your mind, um, like being upfront about the fact that you have changed your mind and like, uh, being clear, like what, why the reasons are for that. Um, like if someone's switching directions, like all the time, it's, it's really hard for a team to like follow along with that. And like, you can't really like dive into a goal if like you feel like it's going to change next week. So, um, I think that's another thing that's related Tell me a little bit about, because I'm, you know, we talked kind of a little bit earlier, you know, about kind of being an infrastructure nerd and kind of playing with that. What are, so you're not doing that stuff now, but uh, 
can you tell me a little bit about what the tech culture is like, or just kind of how, from a DevOps perspective at Nihilus, you know, are developers on call, you know, how are you, you know, tell maybe tell us some of the kind of interesting uh, pieces and parts around, around how you're, uh, you're running your, your, your shop there. Yeah, for sure. So because of the nature of our product, like, you know, it's an API company, our, our infrastructure is our product. Uh, our team is pretty kind of backend heavy in terms of like the actual work that we're doing. So like, while a lot of people on the team consider themselves to be generalist engineers, probably like 75% of their time, they're working on things that are like backend related, building new APIs, scaling, data infrastructure, um, building things in a scalable way, uh, reliability, all those types of things. So um, that's one thing that makes it uh, relatively easy to kind of have like broad policies that apply to everyone in terms of like DevOps type things. So for example, uh, every new engineer who joins our team uh, at least right now, ends up on our on-call rotation within usually about like three to six months after they join. Um, and we we have like a frontline on-call rotation and also an escalation. So eventually some people end up uh, moving to the escalation rotation. And I'm sure at some point we'll have people kind of switching back and forth depending on what else they're working on. But like, it's really important for us to have all engineers uh, know what it's like to be on call because you can't really separate out the kind of running of our infrastructure from like building new features on the product. Like they're all interlinked. It's the same product. There's not a huge separation between front end and back end. And at the end of the day, day we are like an infrastructure company and like people rely on us uh, as like someone who's providing core features to their product. So like people on the team need to know what it's like to operate our software in, in production. You need to know if features you're building are scaling, what are the kinds of things that break in, in, in practice. Um, so I think that's really important. Um, actually when we hired our first kind of like full-time operations person, uh, he was very surprised, uh, to find how easy it was to ask, ask people to join the on-call rotation. Um, because, uh, I think we did a good job at kind of showing why it was important. And also like, and I think that like younger engineers now, they just, they don't have this like trauma from like. A world where like development and operations were like super super separate like it's not as big deal to them they just expect that like if they build something that they're going to like own it and run it as well so um i think like you know at a startup you're often hiring people who are uh like relatively new to the industry and like are hungry to learn and grow and um, i think that's kind of been helpful and that they don't bring kind of like preconceived notions from like how the industry was 10 years ago uh, in terms of like how development teams uh, may have been siloed and uh, kind of broken down. So uh, I think that's been really helpful. Um, there was like a really bad time in the company's past where 
Um, we actually used to have two different products. So one was like the API infrastructure backend, and then we were also working on a desktop email client. And so we had people that were, um, for the most part, just just working on this like front end application. And we had a lot more problems back when that was the case um, in terms of like kind of the people who were familiar with like the platform and the back end having to kind of hold up the house on that end. Um, and we definitely went through a difficult transition where we like spun off that front end pro- product and then had to like train everyone up on contributing to the back end. Um, and there was definitely a time in our past where our on-call rotation was very, very short. Um, and it was, it was a huge problem. Um, I actually wrote a blog post about it at the time. It's definitely on our blog. I can't remember what it's called, but uh, I can provide we'll, a link we'll, later. I was going to say, we'll find, we'll find it. We'll put a link in the show notes. So. Yeah, totally. And like, uh, I, I, at that point I was part of this on-call rotation, which was like three weeks long and like stuff was broken all the time. And, um, this was kind of like right around the time where we were still trying to figure out how to make the email client work as a business. And, uh, it didn't ultimately end up working out, but there was like a lot of pain that we went through there with like part of the team kind of working on something that depended on the back end, but not having to like share the pain of like keeping that back end running 24 seven. So um, I feel like we learned a lot from that as a company. And now like we're very vigilant about everyone having to be a part of uh, the on-call rotation and it's kind of become core to how we run things. And you can share that. And it's interesting when you, you talked about how, you know, you had a three week rotation and how that's rough. And it's uh, one of the things that, that I've started to see with, you know, customers and, and, and just also how we do things internally at PagerDuty is being able, it's, 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 it's less stressful to, even if it's more frequent to have it be shorter. So like the on-call rotation for instant commanders at PagerDuty here is three days. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I can do three days standing on my head. You know, but we sort of, it's, I think it's, you know, and I've been a sysadmin for two decades, right? Before I, you know, back when I used to work for a living and it was just sort of the default's always been a week and a week is a really long, I mean, three weeks is wow. You know, God bless. Yeah. But, I guess you when, know, I say it's, when I say it was a three week rotation, I mean, there were like three people on it and the rotation. Yeah. So you don't have a, but the, the, you don't have a lot that you can do about it at that point, yeah. you know? So that's. When we can share the love like, like that. A soul crushing rotation. Yeah. <laughs> like you, you, you just get out of it and then you're like, I have to go on call again and everything's on fire. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's really, it's uh, and it's, it's good to hear. Like I've, uh, I've seen places that I've been um, where we kind of run into this when you talk about developers being on call where, you know, and again, kind of being from the ops tribe, this always rubs me the wrong way where it's like, Oh, well, but you know, I have a family and it's like, well, it's, Ops people have families too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, one thing though that I thought I found really interesting, I, I was in Australia um, about a month ago, talking to a lot of uh, a lot of folks, and the challenge they have with shifting their on call is that they have reasonable labor laws in Australia, so people who are on call get paid more. So it's actually, it's not so easy. You know, we sit there and we're like, DevOps it up and put everybody on call. And they're like, that's very, they're like, eventually 
it evens itself out, right? Because it's like then the people that they were paying more are on call less, but it's, you know, in, in places like that where people actually are compensated mm-hmm. for on call and after hours work, um, there's like a financial thing that comes into play that makes that, that initial transition a little bit, uh, a little bit more challenging mm-hmm. to see. That's interesting. Yeah. We also have, um, an interesting setup where we, we, so one of the biggest kind of scaling challenges on our backend is actually the size of the data. So um, one way that our platform works is that we actually like cache a copy of all of the mailbox and calendar data that we're serving because um, the way that we've kind of simplified the interface to all of these mail providers doesn't necessarily translate well to like calls to the like, the, the providers APIs themselves like if you if you download a thread from our API it might take half a dozen calls to like reconstruct that thread via IMAP and like that would be one super super slow and one two really flaky if we were trying to do that on the fly all the time so instead of doing that we actually basically just we're almost like an email client that's in the cloud that's like constantly keeping its data store up to date and then we'll serve clients the data on demand. Um, but what this means is that we have a lot of data that we have to store in order to make our product work well. So um, we have a pretty significant fleet of horizontally sharded MySQL clusters, which are our primary data store at this point. And um, we have a team of... Uh, my SQL DBAs who help us run those clusters. And um, one thing that actually like helps make our on-call rotation uh, more sustainable is that uh, we, uh, one of those DBAs was just like really excited and helpful and like volunteered to uh, cover our nights because he's based in Russia. So um, our, our day is his night and vice versa. So, um, it's definitely been helpful for our team to like have that like geographic distribution to, cause like you always try to make it so that like your alerts aren't flappy and stuff like that, but it's a really hard problem. And, um, if you can have someone who's like able to like triage stuff and only escalate things that are like completely broken or that like he, they don't know how to fix, um, that, helps people get woken up less. So um, that's that's a big deal on my end. It's been really helpful. That uh, that actually leads into an interesting question. So, um, so you talk about having you know, someone in Russia. So what's your um, remote culture like? Do you have, you know, is almost everybody in San Francisco? Do you have a lot of remote employees? Are you distributed? What's that like? Yeah, so we started out being entirely co-located in San Francisco. But um, one one kind of like industry trend that is like happening right now is that once, once you get to a certain stage as a company and like in the, in the like venture capital world, uh, series a is kind of the stage I'm talking about series a and beyond. Like it's, it can be very difficult to like hire as many people as you need in San Francisco. And also to like, like provide those people with office space and kind of all the things that you need to be co-located just because, like, to be perfectly honest, like, the real estate uh, environment in San Francisco is, like, 
crazy right now and uh office space is really expensive housing is really expensive and um the that just like limits the speed at which you can hire people here um i think our our office manager was not super thrilled when i decided to move to san francisco and they're like now we have to find somewhere for you to sit (laughs) yeah yeah seriously i've i've gained so much empathy for like all sorts of like problems that people don't really encounter until they're like kind of growing a company. And especially since I care so much about like diversity as a company, it's like painfully obvious how much like being headquartered in extremely expensive city uh, affects that because there's just like certain types of people that are like automatically at a disadvantage. If uh, like the only option is to work in San Francisco, um, because of like the housing price, like for example, people with families, it's like yeah. hard to have enough space to have kids in San Francisco. Uh, basically, like we used to be like hardcore co-located, and we've like relaxed our grip as like we've uh, grown as a company. And I do think it is really valuable to all be in the same place when you're like kind of incubating an idea. And there's obviously different ways to do it, but it's like fun and easy. Uh, and like communication is really high bandwidth when you're just like all in the same room every day. Um, but you know, now that our products like a bit more established and there's like, uh, kind of projects that last a long t- uh, multiple months sometimes. And, uh, like the work is like a bit more predictable. Um, like we're not kind of inventing something from scratch. Um, it's, totally possible for us to like move as quickly while having people who are not co-located. So we, I would say like 80% of the team is still in San Francisco, but um, we're hiring more and more remote folks. Uh, We currently have four people who are remote, four engineers on the team who are full-time remote and have been like advertising for and uh, putting out offers to people to also be remote in other locations. Um, so like we're pretty uh we're pretty um committed to like supporting remote from this point on um and like I I'm pretty much of the opinion that once you get to a certain size in San Francisco you either have to like open another office somewhere and maybe you can have two locations or you just kind of go full distributed um uh just because that's what you have to do in the current environment what are some of the things that you've been doing, you know, so sort of as you're making that transition to adding, you know, more of a distributed workforce, more remote, remote folks and stuff. What are, um, what are some of the things you're doing for those, you know, to kind of have those remote employees be first class citizens as well. This is someone who spent most of the, this is the first time since I moved to San Francisco, this is the first time I've worked in an office in like eight years. Yeah. So I've been a remote employee for a very long nice. time. So this is near and dear to my heart. You know, I, had to, I had to train my team when I started yeah. here at PagerDuty about what it was like to have uh, someone remote. And then I, then I moved here. So I kind of ruined it. It's the first thing you did <laughs> was buy a pair of noise-canceling headphones. Yeah. <laughs> first thing I did was say, remember time zones? Because I was in Chicago. And so there were a lot of 6 yeah. p.m., 7 p.m. Yeah, was, meetings for me. And I was like, um, I was just saying that now folks, that you've moved to San Francisco, you have to deal with uh, all these open plan offices and yeah. figure out how to get work done while there's people all around you all the time. 
Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'd say the first thing that we did was um, move the time of our all hands. So we're a startup. We have like a weekly all hands sync up. Um, used to be on Fridays at like four o'clock. And uh, it's basically as soon as we had people full time on the East Coast, we're like, well, that's really shitty for them um, to either like miss all hands every week or have to be at work until like 8 p.m. Um, so we moved it until uh, to directly after lunch, um, West Coast time, which means that they're done by 5 p.m. on Friday. Um, and I think that like, time zones is like there's there's good reason to like kind of try to limit the complexity of your time zones even when um you are committing to remote at least at first because like if we had full-time people who were like in australia or something that just makes scheduling really complicated yeah. <laughs> um so we're kind of taking it becomes baby very steps. hard math when the day changes yeah like at this point we're committed to like all of North American time zones and like we can handle that. It's like only three hours difference. Um, but we're not quite to like hiring full-time people who are, um, all around the world. Um, but so that's, that was one thing. Uh, another thing is like investing in kind of better, uh, microphone setups. Um, so like we have a couple, uh, conference rooms that are outfitted with webcams. And uh, we also got some area microphones, which um, if you haven't heard of them, they're basically like, like a microphone that has like 180 degrees of like pickup. Um, so they're directional microphones, um, but they kind of allow people to hear things that are going on uh, in other parts of the room. So you can actually have a meeting in a room um, and people can tell what's going on. Um, we've always been pretty good at like uh, writing stuff down in in like Slack and we use Dropbox paper for everything. So like it's kind of like our company wiki. So uh, kind of the default thing when anyone's organizing like a project or just writing up a proposal, something like that is to write a paper doc and drop it on Slack to, to get feedback. So that's something that like, doesn't really matter where you are. You can participate in that. Um, but yeah, I think that so, like definitely being aware of time zones and making sure to like loop people in, um, Outfitting conference rooms with like AV equipment is like the place to start. Awesome. So uh, we're just getting ready to probably wrap up here. Uh, is there any other things that come to mind that you wanted to, you know, that were kind of through the history of kind of your starting your company that that were interesting, that were kind of lessons learned, maybe any little fun, uh, fun stories, you know, kind of in retrospect as we wrap up? Yeah, one of the most... One of those eye-opening things to me is that, like, as you, like, grow and scale a company from, like, you know, two people to much many more than that, like, you can kind of, you can kind of see over time, like, why structures develop in companies in a certain way, and, like, you kind of understand, like, what processes 
develop for. And I think that like, I guess for me, this has like given me an amount of like empathy and understanding for like the way that other companies are that like I can never go back from. It's like, I will never like rail and complain blindly about like all of the like process that exists elsewhere because I, I'm like seeing it accrete and like grow over time. And like, I see why it is happening. It's because like, you know, once you get more than like 10 people working on something, like communication starts to break down and you can like see it break down. And like you, if, if you like bring in people who are more diverse, like you need to like be more clear about like, uh, like the words that you're using and, um, you can't rely as much on assumptions. So I think that like kind of one of the most big and valuable things is like learning about like human dynamics and like how people are able to like interact together at like different sizes, because unless you like see a company kind of grow and scale through those stages, it can just be like a black box. You're like, wow, we have this like convoluted structure for like, you know, organizing things and, uh, like, couldn't this be a lot simpler? But there's always a reason why kind of things end up that way. And it's been very uh, enlightening. Context is a thing. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Serious. So um, just to, to wrap up, uh, as usual, if you're looking for uh, the chance to speak at an event, uh, there's a list of open uh, CFPs for DevOps Days at devopsdays.org slash speaking. You'll check it out there. Um, if you go to arrestdevops.com slash spang, we'll have this episode's show notes. And our website is also where you can subscribe to our newsletter, all the sorts of Arrested DevOps stuff you could ever want. If you go to arrestdevops.com slash iTunes, uh, leave us a review in the iTunes store. That actually helps other people find the podcast. So that's kind of cool. So thanks a lot, uh, Spang, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Yeah, great to talk to you too, Maddie. Yeah. And uh, so, as usual, I'm Maddie. I'm at Matt Stratton. Uh, this is Arrested DevOps. And remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand.